Can we just do that last bit? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The last chorus into ending? Good morning. Um, The reading, as was said, is starting in 2 Timothy, and it's the first two chapters. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life, that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, God the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, He searched for me, earnestly, and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, in trust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. 
Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the fair share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them then of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk was spread like gangrene. Among them are Harmenius and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and... Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honourable use, some for dishonourable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonourable, he will be a vessel for honourable use, set apart as holy useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may, perhaps, grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him, 
to do his will. This is the word of the Lord. Great, Jean, thank you so much for reading that long section. Please do have a Bible open with you at 2 Timothy, and we'll be looking at that letter together. Uh, let me add my greeting to Scott's this morning. Very w- special welcome to everyone who's with us today, especially to the dads in the room. Happy Father's Day. Um, I hope you've had a great day so far. Looking forward to a good Father's Day uh, to come. Thanks also to everyone who turned up for the working bee yesterday. Um, everything looks amazing uh, around the inside of the church. We spent a lot of time cleaning here. It was good fun. And also, how many of the ladies are here who went to the conference yesterday? Oh, what troopers. Fantastic. Great. Go and chat to these ladies afterwards and ask them how the conference was. Um, and just make sure you give yourself enough time to hear the full explanation. It'll give you about 20 to 30 minutes, I think, to hear how great it was. So make time for that over morning tea. That sounds like it was a great day. Let's pray, and then we will get into God's word together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which you have breathed out, which is able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Please teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's hard to know when exactly it happened, but I think the last decade has felt like one hammer blow after another uh, against the, you know, the, what, what felt like the victorious heyday of Christianity, at least in the West, over the past um, 50 years, I, I imagine. In the second half of the 20th century, it seemed like nothing could stop the spread of the gospel, could it? Uh, worldwide missions exploded. You had people like Billy Graham, emphasizing the authority of the Bible as God's word, the need for a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with millions eager to hear the message. Uh, Billy Graham himself became a a friend and confidant to world leaders while proclaiming this message. The Bible shaped public discourse. Its ethics even shaped public policy. The Bible uh, wasn't simply tolerated, but it was accepted and even valued. To be a Christian in Australia was to be regarded as one of the good guys, not so. Here in Australia, that same wave of gospel priority impacted our universities and other places. It captured the hearts and minds of a whole generation of future church leaders who left an indelible mark on our country. Some even talk of a revival here on the Sunshine Coast about 30 years ago. But then came the amendments of the Marriage Act. Then came the conversion therapy bills, the religious freedom bills, the abortion debates, the assisted suicide laws, the attacks on the rights of faith-based schools to employ those who align with their distinctives, the pressure to celebrate pride days at work or lose your job, secular leaders who wear their Christianity on their sleeve being pilloried rather than praised, especially if it's of the Protestant evangelical variety. So now our society is convinced that the bizarre notion of taking the Bible literally as God's word can only lead to a disgraceful harm of the most vulnerable in our society. Christianity is no longer accepted, tolerated, or valued. It must now be hated, rejected, and criminalized at all costs. We're the bad guys now. 
So as author Stephen McAlpine pointed out in a podcast last year, now we're entering this post-Christian phase, which isn't the same as pre-Christian paganism. It's much more hostile, much more evangelistically driven, the post-Christian framework, and Christians are seen as the sinners in that framework, as those who are getting in the way of a good, utopian, joyful, free future. Now, all that stuff I've just said is about culture, it's about society, and how the tide is turning against the Christianized society we've become used to, upending our comfort and our certainty. But there's another side as well, because the church isn't just facing pressure from without, it's also facing pressure from within, particularly around our own ability to withstand the rising storm. Because during the age of, of, let's call it comfortable Christianity, second half of the 20th century, I think we became comfortable too. And we failed to train the next generation of Christians to carry the name of Christ into the world. Churches end up looking more like exclusive clubs or holiday resorts or entertainment events rather than the spiritual field hospitals they're meant to be. We failed to train future church leaders. Just anecdotally, I've heard that there's a denomination here in Australia that in one state has 30 vacancies in pulpits around the state. I've also heard of another denomination where 40 of their ministers will be retiring in the next decade with no one to replace them as yet. And of course, we keep hearing about the moral failure of some high-profile Christian leaders and the deconversion of others. What on earth are we supposed to do? What is the future of Christianity in the world, and especially here in Australia? The future looks bleak, we're afraid, and fear makes us respond in foolish ways. Well, in God's providence and wisdom, the church has been here before. In the second half of the first century, Christians were also seen as the bad guys. And from both secular and religious ends of the spectrum, they were to be stamped out. Even more, the first pioneering generation of gospel workers in the middle of the first century, they were coming to an end. The apostles and their fellow workers were arrested, they were executed, they were exiled for their faith in Jesus and their ministry in his name. And that's actually the situation we find Paul in as he writes to his young trainee, Timothy. Now, I know it was a long section we read this morning. We'll be doing something similar next week with chapters 3 and 4. But I'm, I'm glad we're getting to read a big chunk of this very special letter. Because it helps us to hear Paul's heart as he writes into this very similar situation to what we find ourselves in today. Paul's sitting in jail in Rome. He's bound with chains. And Paul seems to believe that this is his final imprisonment. So over in chapter 4, verse 6, he says this. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. You can tell Paul is lonely. You can tell he's tired. He's cold, and he needs his cloak. It's Paul that is most human. This great Christian leader, but at the same time, you can also tell that his situation has brought a whole bunch of things into very sharp focus. One of those things is his personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
it's clear who he has complete confidence in. Chapter 1, verse 1, even as he faces his own death, he greets Timothy with confidence in the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. It's 1, verse 1. Towards the end of chapter 4, verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against him, them. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me. Yes, it's hard, but his personal relationship with Jesus has been very much refined. Another thing that is clear for Paul is this priority then of passing the torch of the gospel to the next generation. It's clear that Paul knows that though he's bound in chains like a criminal, 2 verse 9, that the word of God is not bound. And so the gospel won't die with Paul, and therefore church leaders like Timothy and others and ourselves must be given the confidence to pick it up and to run with it. So here's the plan. What I I hope to do today and next week is to highlight across these four chapters the different ways Paul encourages Timothy to face the future. Now, Paul's letter to Timothy can be divided into two halves. In the first section, chapters 1 and 2, it's very much about treasuring the gospel, treasuring the gospel. It's a gospel that's worth guarding. It's a gospel worth suffering for. It's a gospel uh, worth passing on, worth resting in. It's a gospel to treasure. That'll be the focus of this morning's message. But in the second section, chapters 3 and 4, Paul encourages Timothy to patiently and constantly proclaim the gospel because it'll expose dangerous ungodliness and it has God's power to save and transform lives. So that's the, the two halves of one Timothy, uh, sorry, two Timothy. Treasure the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And we'll look at proclaiming the gospel next week. And you know, perhaps it's quite appropriate we're beginning this letter on Father's Day. Because Paul's relationship to Timothy, it's not one of kind of ecclesiastical authority, but fatherly love. He sees Timothy 1 verse 2 as a beloved child whom he has taught, whom he's modeled the gospel to, so that Timothy in turn may do the same for others. Now, I realize that 2 Timothy does pose a bit of a problem for us, because yes, it's in the Bibles as God's word to his church, it's also a very personal and specific letter to a first century church leader. So what are we supposed to do with it, who are sitting here in 2022, who are perhaps not church leaders? The answer is quite simple, and here it is in two parts. First thing to remember is that Christianity is not a top-down thing. It's not about religious pronouncements being made from on high by elevated mortals in funny hats. Christianity is an alongside thing where all of us together, church leaders included, are pursuing discipleship with Jesus together. For that reason, just as Timothy must love and cherish the gospel Let's bring his own life in line with it and work to see it proclaimed. So we've all got to do that together. So firstly, Christianity is not a top-down thing. It's an alongside thing. Secondly, Christian leaders have an important responsibility for treasuring and proclaiming the gospel for each new generation of Christians. And therefore, we as a church must recognize, encourage, and promote the kind of godly gospel ministry that Paul charges Timothy with. Okay? That's our plan. Let's go. 
As I said, today's theme will be treasuring the gospel. I had hoped to give you five ways to treasure the gospel that Paul highlights in the letter, but I think we're only going to manage three this morning in the time we have. So I'm hoping we can look at numbers four and five next week before we look then at what proclaiming the gospel is all about. Also, we're going to jump around in the letter a fair bit. So do have a Bible open with you at 2 Timothy so you can flip around with us. It'll be very helpful. Right, let's get into our first point. I could actually turn this on. That would help. There we go. Our first point, be proud of the gospel. We're looking at how we can face uh, the future as Christians, how Christianity will carry into the future. First thing Paul tells Timothy, be proud of the gospel. So after his heartfelt introduction to Timothy in verse uh, uh, 1 to 6, Paul says this in verse 7, chapter 1. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Now, I've, I've positively reframed Paul's encouragement not to be ashamed of the gospel by saying that we should be proud of the gospel. The Bible doesn't actually say that, but let me explain what I mean. Pride is a big thing in our world. I probably don't have to explain that to you. However, the one thing above all else that we're told to not be proud of, in fact, to be ashamed of, is a belief in a sovereign God to whom all human beings are accountable. We're told to be more ashamed when that God sends a savior born miraculously to a virgin mum who then dies a shameful death before being unbelievably risen from the dead. And we must be especially ashamed when that savior calls us to deny ourselves and follow him if we want to escape a coming judgment on our sins. How dare we? We should be ashamed of ourselves for believing such things, never mind sharing them and expecting others to believe them too. It was no different in Paul's day, really, but what does he say to Timothy in verse 8? Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And he goes on to add, actually, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. That's because he knows that if we're ashamed of the gospel, we'll also tend to be ashamed of those who are unashamed of the gospel. And so Satan will divide God's people. So what basis does Paul give for being so unashamed of the gospel and its ambassadors? Well, it's there in his confidence in what the gospel has done. Look with me at verse 9 of chapter 1. He says there, God who saved us, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. can be unashamed of the gospel because he's confident in what the gospel has done. Find me another ideology in the world that achieves that. But it's not just there in his confidence in what the gospel has done. 
It's also there in Paul's confidence in the one he knows through the gospel. So verse 12 of the same chapter. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, i.e. the gospel. If you grew up where I did, you'd know that as a, that little verse as a Sunday school song. But I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul knows personally the one who makes the gospel come true. The Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so do we. If we've been saved, as it says in verse 9, not by works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Friends, the future of Christianity, of course, is in the Lord's hands. But he will work out his purposes until Jesus comes back through Christians who treasure the gospel enough to be proud of it, to be confident in it, willing to identify by it, willing to stake our lives on it, and on the one we know through the gospel. And you know, when things get really tough, and we see our brothers and sisters losing their livelihoods and their liberty, specifically for the sake of the gospel. May we not be ashamed, but just be just like Paul's friend, Onesiphorus, standing side by side with him, whatever the cost. Paul details in this letter how many were ashamed of him, sitting in Rome in chains. But Onesiphorus wasn't one of them. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1 with me. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May we not be ashamed of the chains of our brothers and sisters in Christ when it comes to that. Well, close on the heels of the first point um, is in the same verse, and it's a willingness of Christians to suffer for the gospel. So still in verse 8, look with me. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. If we are prepared to be proud of the gospel in the 21st century, we must be willing to stick out. As we're living in a world that's not our home, so borrowing again from Stephen McAlpine, who I quoted earlier, gone are the days of Christians being the good guys, or even just being the kind of you know, weird but harmless guys. We are now the bad guys, and if you've ever watched any action movie, bad guys must be stopped, right? As Paul reminds Timothy in chapter 3, verse 1, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. We're not heading for days of greater comfort, but times of difficulty for following Jesus. And you know, this is going to be especially painful if we've been trained to believe that Christians are meant to be the entitled ones in our society. If we become accustomed to the idea that we can have it all and have Jesus too. Because we're going to be called to make some hard choices. My prosperity... Or Jesus, because I can't have both. 
My job or Jesus, because I can't have both. My friends or Jesus, because I can't have both. My reputation or Jesus, because I can't have both. My comfort or Jesus, because I can't have both. Friends, if we're going to stick with Team Jesus, we will suffer for the gospel. There is no avoiding it. And you know, sadly, this pressure can even come from within the church as Christians buckle under the pressure of having to stick with Jesus in a world turned against them. Well, how does Paul tell Timothy to face suffering for the gospel? Look again at verse 8. He says, but share in suffering, so something we do together, for the gospel, by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Friends, because of the gospel, we can face suffering together in God's power, Because he has already saved us. He's already saved us as the fulfillment of a plan begun in eternity past. Which abolishes death. And gives us life for eternity future. In other words, the gospel outdoes, outshines, and outlasts any suffering we might experience in this short life. For the sake of Christ. It's the reason for Paul's confidence over in chapter 4, verse 18. Where he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He knows he's going to have his head chopped off. And yet he can still say, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever. But there's more. Paul also says to Timothy, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 3. 2, verse 3 and 4 says this. He says to Timothy, Share in sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So what Paul is saying here is that suffering for Jesus is going to require a single-mindedness in our relationship with Jesus. When we suffer for the gospel, we're going to be tempted to please our opponents in the hope that they will stop tormenting us. Or we will be tempted to please ourselves and avoid suffering altogether. Paul says neither of those are options. In fact, we must please Jesus because he has enlisted us. Like a good soldier to his commanding officer, our aim must be to please Jesus because he has chosen us. Finally, let's, on this theme of suffering, let's look a little further down at verse 8 and 9 of chapter 2. Paul is suffering himself. He's on death row in Rome. It's a a, a prison which was known to be a really kind of 
dark and miserable place, the Mamertine prison in Rome. So as he says, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But then he says, you know, I might be bound, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you see what, what Paul's thinking there? He's willing to endure suffering now for the sake of the gospel for those who are yet to hear the gospel. Because of Jesus, Paul knows he's got nothing to lose. So he's thinking beyond himself to the next generation. And he wants to spend eternity in God's kingdom with them. So he's going to face suffering and as an example to future generations to stick with Jesus because it's worth it. Come what may. To show that eternity with Jesus is, losing, is worth losing everything for. An old missionary in the 1950s once said, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now that might be all well and good, but I think for those of us who are parents, we think of our children and we fear what our suffering for the gospel might cost them. That's a real fear. But perhaps we need then the reminder of John Bunyan the famous 17th century writer of the Pilgrim's Progress and preacher of the gospel, who spent 12 years in jail in England for preaching the gospel. Nothing more. He just wasn't doing it in the way the authorities wanted him to do. But he preached the gospel and was thrown in prison. Now his imprisonment left his family without a breadwinner, a wife and four children, the oldest of whom was blind. They were all under 10 at the time. Now, amazingly, Bunyan's suffering for the gospel actually strengthened his family's faith. And you'd be amazed reading his wife's defense of him against the magistrates. It strengthened his family's faith rather than weakened it, even though they suffered as a result of his imprisonment. And you know, he could have been released just by saying, okay, I won't preach the gospel. Give him back to his family and carry on earning a living supporting his family. But his family wouldn't hear of it. And you know, his blind daughter Mary actually learned the way to the prison uh, by memory. She, was, she couldn't obviously see. And she would walk there every day to feed her father while he suffered for the gospel. It's amazing how the gospel, suffering for the gospel has a strengthening effect rather than a weakening one. And we'd be good to remember that. We fear suffering for the gospel because it does look like bad PR. He wants to join us when it's so hard. But we forget one thing. You know, when the church prospers, people are often attracted to the prosperity of the church. But when the church suffers, people are attracted to Jesus. Friends, the future of Christianity is, of course, in the Lord's hands. But he will work out his purposes until Jesus comes back through Christians who are willing to treasure the gospel enough to suffer for it. Because we have a glorious future with Jesus in view and we want others to share it too. Point number three and our final one for this morning. Guard the gospel. 
if we treasure something, naturally we want to keep it safe. And guarding the gospel is a frequent theme in 2 Timothy. So if you flip back to chapter 1, looking at verse 14, Paul says to Timothy, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's remember the safety of the gospel doesn't depend on us or on church leaders. Two verses earlier, we read of Paul's confidence that the Lord is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. So ultimately, it is in in God's hands, but we are also called to guard the gospel. How is Timothy meant to guard the gospel under God? Well, the first thing is for Timothy to base his own life on the gospel. He can't just keep the gospel kind of locked away in a box and think that that's going to protect it. He's got to galvanize his life with the gospel. So just one verse previously, verse 13, Paul says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. He explains what that means, living by it. Timothy's own life is meant to be staked on the gospel, shaped by it. But secondly, Timothy is meant to actively guard the gospel from error and distraction. So towards the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3, Timothy is warned by Paul to proclaim the gospel in a winsome and a hopeful way against those who have swerved from the truth, 2 verse 18, and those who oppose the truth, in 3 verse 8. Now, interestingly, I think this is very important. Timothy's public proclamation of the gospel, to guard the gospel, and his personal practice of the gospel, to guard the gospel, they are inseparable in this guarding of the gospel. So Timothy can't say one thing and do another. He's actually got to walk the talk, in a way, and talk the walk. Because public proclamation and personal practice of the gospel are inseparable. So look at 2, verse 24 to 26 with me, please. Chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's go a little bit further on to 3 verse 14. Again, this is about following the pattern of sound doctrine that that, uh, Timothy has learned from Paul. 3 verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learnt it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, as for Timothy, so for us, We must guard the gospel in our lives and on our lips, not tolerating any deviation or divergence in ourselves or in one another, but always in the spirit of the gospel itself. You see, there's no space 
and what Paul says to Timothy, for using the gospel as a weapon. Gospel's not designed like that. Gospel's designed to save sinners. And that's the spirit in which it must be protected. So even as we respond to those who oppose the gospel, we do it in the pattern marked out by the gospel. Kind, patient, gentle, sympathetic, desiring the best for the other person and trusting God's word, not our words, to do the work. And yes, this is the work of church leaders to guard the gospel for the church, but because we're all in this together, it's a responsibility we all share out of love for one another. Friends, the future of Christianity is, of course, in the Lord's hands. But he will work out his purposes until Jesus comes back through Christians who are willing to treasure the gospel enough to guard it because they love God's people. As I said earlier, because of time, we're going to have to leave it there for today, and I hope what we've covered so far has been helpful to you. I hope you can join us again next week as we continue into Timothy. We'll look at those final two points, chapter point four and five, and then we'll get into the next two chapters. But I hope you can see already that when it comes to the future of Christianity, especially today, it's not going to be about uh, clever strategies. It's not going to be about being relevant It's not going to even be about being combative against the pressures of the world. It's simply going to be about clinging to Jesus and treasuring the gospel and proclaiming it in the spirit that the gospel requires of us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we're conscious that we live in the last days. And Lord, we know that times of difficulty are upon us. But, Father, we know who we have believed. And we trust that you are able to guard unto that day what you have committed to us. Father, help us to trust you with everything. Help us to rest in you, lean on you, to treasure the gospel, to be proud of being Christians, to be willing to suffer for the gospel and to guard the gospel, both in our lives and on our lips. Lord, we pray this so that people would see and turn to Jesus. And we, too, may be assured of that glorious future we will enjoy with you forever when this short life is over. I pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.